Hi, it's Bill Harvey. Welcome to Harvey at Harvey, a series of conversations about inspiration, creativity, and community recorded at Harvey Restaurant in Brooklyn's Williamsburg Hotel. Today, my guest is William Clark. William is a literary agent, and he recently joined me to talk about agenting and his interesting creative journey. So, William Clark, welcome. Welcome to Harvey at Harvey. Thank you, William. <laughs> <laughs> so, William, we were talking a little earlier. You're a literary agent. Yeah, that's how I identify these days. Is it? Yeah. Um, and a parent? A parent, yeah. I have a 13-year-old daughter. Community member? Prospect Heights, Brooklyn. Uh-huh. Great neighborhood. I found the sociability I thought I'd find in the West Village and Prospect Heights. It's a neighborhood, right? It is. It is. It's uh, one of those places where you feel like people have your back. Something I never experienced in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. You identify as a literary agent, which is kind of, for me, like identifying as a conjurer. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of invokes this arcane world of magic connectivity and cultural evaluation and being a gatekeeper to the future of culture. Am I accurate? You're accurate. (laughs) I mean, I think, you know, the industry in a lot of people's minds exists in this magical mythical realm whereby you produce something and hand it over to an agent and they send you a check. That's just not how it is anymore, though. (laughs) There's a uh, different... I feel a different way to look at it. Um, We can't do anything without the author, without the people creating the uh, content to sell, whether it's someone who just wants to create merchandise in the form of a book or someone who really wants to distill a lifetime's experience into 200, 250 pages. So we look for ways to make that happen. I always ask people if there is something that inspired them on this, the journey that they're on. Yeah, you know, I, I think it has a lot to do with identifying someone who has uh, something original to say, someone who maybe has a different take on something we think we understand already and turns it around so we see it in a different light. Someone who takes a topic further, deepens the understanding. Usually I look for some element of force for good just in terms of what's going to move this conversation forward. So when you were a young person growing up, was it your aspiration to become a a literary agent or literary person? No, I wanted to be an architect. Uh-huh. I was dwelling in the world of Walter Gropius and Frank Lloyd Wright, which yeah. we connected about early on. My father is, is a general contractor, so I grew up reading blueprints and smelling raw concrete and sawn wood. Worked as a mud boy some summers, but 
And then my mother gave me a copy of Frank Lloyd Wright's An Autobiography. Mm-hmm. I think when I was 11 years old. And it was the first serious book that I ever read. And uh, it fascinated me. Just his ideas about building and mm-hmm. nature. Ideas of organic architecture. Usonian architecture. Yeah. Excited me. Yeah, and then, you know, I also fell in love with Le Corbusier. You know, machines for living. Yeah. These immaculately proportioned places where it just seems psychologically perfect to me in some ways has no small amount to do with ego so you were going to continue being a builder i thought i would be an architect you know i love drafting and i designed an atm enclosure for a bank my grandfather was involved with in southwestern virginia and i think that's the only thing i ever designed that was actually built then i moved into writing i wrote for many years thought of myself as a writer you know, edited magazines, published in magazines, um, started editing magazines, and started working with writers, which I think, you know, certainly paved the way towards either editing in a larger situation at a publishing house or agenting. Uh, my two friends who had written a biography of uh, Oscar Levant for an imprint at Random House called Villard. And uh, their agent needed an assistant, and I was living in Richmond, Virginia, designing car advertising for Auto Trader and Truck Trader because I knew how to use a Macintosh. Oh. Yeah. I got laid Uh. off of that job, so I was uh, looking for something new. And their agent needed an assistant, and I was going to move to New York anyway, and I thought it'd be a better idea to move here with a job than without a job and hopped on the train in Richmond and got out and two hours later I was interviewing with this agent and somehow assumed that I'd gotten the job went out found an apartment she asked me if I could work the next day wow I didn't tell her I wasn't living there I said okay so I worked the next day and then I went back down to Richmond and put my apartment out on the lawn and sold everything and put everything else in a U-Haul and drove to New York and moved into my apartment on West 14th Street. Wow. It would be convulsive, or not at all, as Andre Breton said. From the esteemed publication of Auto Trader. <laughs> to working for someone who was really a pioneer in her field, someone who had been instrumental in bringing Primo Levi and Italo Calvino and wow. Eric Maria Remarque and Robert Musel's works to the United States in translation. Um, I was very happy to be in that position. She had paintings by Henry Miller on the walls of her office of them in bed together. But you hadn't really thought about being an agent? It just kind of... No, you know, I had no interest in business. I really had... I was interested in in enjambment and internal rhyme and creating poems that were like a rubber ball in a concrete room that just kind of had their own kinetic tension. You know, I liked very short lines. I, but I found that I had a talent for business. Hmm. I enjoyed contracts, something I'd never read before. Hmm. I enjoyed getting to know who published what in what countries and learning these exotic names and typing everything on a typewriter. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. You know, my, uh, my boss's apartment was across the street from the office on uh, West 13th, and she could look down from her apartment into the office to make sure that I was working. It was uh, a series of events that uh, un completely unplanned or... Mishaps, Mishaps. you know? Hmm. It's funny, there's a, uh, there's a description of a lineage of Buddhism. Um, it's called the mishap lineage, to refer to as a mishap lineage, and it's when things happen and you take advantage of them in the best ways to keep on moving, you know? gain some kind of knowledge from them. And I've had some happy mishaps. It's an interesting idea because, you know, in our culture, we're so goal-oriented that uh, does, that could inhibit us from experiencing a mishap as or even being aware that there's potential in a situation. Yeah, I think in our lives, the older we get, we are faced with any number of situations where a small decision can have enormous consequences. But I think the older you get, the more you realize when you, when you choose a certain route of action, it's going to have a better outcome maybe than another route of action. And preferably that outcome has a better outcome for not just you but other people. And that's something I've tried to develop over time. I guess your first boss was a mentor? She was. She... She was a larger-than-life figure who was known around the world in publishing. Um, she had a drinking problem, so that created problems in the office in terms of communication and my desire to be there. So I was, started looking for other opportunities and heard of a job with an agent named Ginger Barber who uh, was from Blacksburg, Virginia. Mm. She had moved to New York and on the basis of uh, an advance for an academic book she'd written, she started her own agency. Wow. And uh, she represented a number of mainstream literary authors like Rosalind Brown, Anita Shreve, um, Peter Mayle, who recently died, you know. Um, a, what was it? Life in Provence or something in Provence. You know, he started that whole genre of literature about the expat, expat in a foreign country um, but she was really she was really quite a generous person so I worked for I worked for Ginger for a while and was hired away by another agent who then fired me when I couldn't uh, do the accounts on a paper ledger I hadn't ever done accounting so I didn't feel too bad about that uh, but uh, there was another agent in the office who encouraged me to write a letter to a fellow named Owen Laster at William Morris. And Owen was the worldwide head of the literary department at William Morris. And I wrote a letter to him saying that I had worked with um, an editor who was about to join William Morris as an agent. And were they looking for someone to work with her? And he said, well, I think, you know, we want someone who's been here to work with her, but why don't you come in and talk to me? And I did that, and they hired me. Hmm. I worked for a couple of other agents uh, for a few months, and then I ended up working with him for about five years. He's really my root guru mm -hmm. in this business. He, uh, he brought a consideration and a diligence 
to the business of managing authors and their copyrights that uh, has informed my business to mm -hmm. this day, certainly. He opened his life to me. I'd speak to him at 7.30 in the morning. I'd speak to him at 11.30 at night. And he said, by the time we end working together, you're either going to love me or hate me. <laughs> but I ended up loving him. So that would be a pre-digital publishing era. Yes. I was, you know, one of the aspects of, of the William Morris training program was that you would listen in on your boss's telephone calls. Mm -hmm. And so I would listen in on all of his calls as he was negotiating. And I remember very clearly these long, drawn-out calls with Random House uh, where they couldn't agree on anything. They just would say, well, we'll agree on this later and leave it at that. And then they would go back and talk about it some more. Turned out to have larger consequences down the road. That was 1996, and the Kindle didn't come out until 2007, mm -hmm. I think. That changed everything. That made the stakes real. Previous to that, it was just both sides existing in a kind of a fearful state of what might. So he would be a mentor. Yes, when you think of a mentor, you think of someone who pushes you towards your potential, always looks for opportunities to help you along the path or whatever you're doing, and he was that person. Even after I left Willie Morris, he was always interested in what was happening and how he could help me. But you don't write anymore? Or? No, you know, I, I don't. There was a bell lettrist in Paris around the turn of the century named Max Jacob, who did a very thin volume of advice to a young writer or a young poet. And when people ask me why I don't write anymore, I said, well, you know, Max Jacob said, it doesn't matter if you're bored, what matters is the quality of your boredom. And I'm never bored <laughs> in New York, you know. And I, I once, uh, when I lived, you know, in Virginia, I had a lot of time to myself, and I could read a little bit of this and read a little bit of that or associate in a way that city life didn't, allow for me yeah. I'm going to ask about agenting again yeah let's I mean, go for it it's not necessarily who you are as a total person but it's a really fascinating arcane field well you know the, the, the model of agenting goes back to the code of Hammurabi and the sixth king of Babylon and it uh, you know it winds through history uh, up through you know the French who didn't think that anyone could represent anyone else um, there have always been agents and commercial businesses representing the interest of others. You know, the idea is that by engaging an agent, um, an individual can expand their field of operations vastly. But agenting in the publishing business didn't really come about until the late 1800s when copyright began to be recognized, royalties became the method of paying authors uh, for their work. So the agent uh, representing authors started out representing both publishers and authors, and specifically um, newspapers, and that they would syndicate the hmm. newspaper pieces to other places for publication. And then that evolved into representing the author to publishers. A.P. Watt was the first agent in London on Paternoster Row. Um, Agenting as a, uh, as a field in the business remains largely the same until the 1970s when English language rights became incredibly valuable. 
and agents like Mort Janklow took a more legalistic uh, view of representing authors' interests and brought a level of um, strategy that hadn't kind of existed before mm. to the management of an author's copyright corpus, as you will. There aren't many rules of competition in agenting. There is this agreement that you're not going to poach other people's clients. But we are now in a time where you know, we're starting to think about how we can leverage technology to advance the interests of our clients, not in terms of publishing, but in terms of managing their data. You know? And one of the interesting things about being an agent is that your primary trading partner is the publisher mm -hmm. or the studio or whomever is buying rights. Um, and those are few and authors are many. So a lot of times a sense of fealty is uh, perceived uh, to the publisher, which isn't necessary, but nonetheless a lot of people feel that way. Mm -hmm. So the um, Mort Janklau was really the first person to have a, a global product? Well, Mort was a lawyer, so... Yeah. Most people come to this business because they love books, not because they know anything about law or especially about copyright law. And he looked at agreements and he said, this doesn't make sense. You know, this, the, this clause is not in the interest of the author. Why shouldn't I question this? So he did. And he upped the game. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you could, you know, one other person in the business who has up the game um, and brings a level of analysis to managing copyright that no one else did at that time was Andrew Wiley. And Andrew was able to think about publishing in a global sense and how to allocate intellectual property um, in a very interesting way that has succeeded wildly. Mm -hmm. We were talking earlier about uh, other digital disruptions and the potential of... Uh, blockchain technology and IP, intellectual property, monetization and, and uh, protection. Do you see hope in that? I do. I, th I think so much of the industry has, um, has digitized. It's a digital workflow. Where I think we have problems are, is, the, is in the management of the author's uh, information. You know, in the same way that... Mm -hmm. It's preferred for a musician to own their master, so the writer needs to own their master. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they need to be confident. You know, when you engage an agent, for example, um, as opposed to an employee who's sitting in front of you, you can see what they're doing. You know how much time they're spending on your work. With an agent, they're serving many masters. You don't know how much time they're spending on your work. Um, there's an asymmetry of information they necessarily know more about the field than you do. Mm -hmm. So there's a cost associated with that. So I'm very interested in lessening that cost. You know, I think that I take the position that I work for authors and I want them to own their information. I want them to have optionality in terms of representation, but also in terms of where their work is exploited. And I think that um, in the next few years, uh, we will see digital tool sets that allow authors to have greater control 
over their rights than they've had before. I mean, I think that the blockchain is part of that in terms of tracking copyright, having verifiable ownership of content. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, as uh, Bill Gates said, content is king. Well, if, if content is king, then the creators are disappearing in the sea of content. Mm -hmm. you know? When I think about the industry that you're in, it's, it's one of these industries that relies on asymmetry of information. Yeah. And they say that any industry that relies on asymmetry of information is rife for disruption. But do you see potential for disruption within? Absolutely. <laughs> I do. You know, I've been on, when I left William Morris, I was thinking about ways to grow a business. And one of those was to do a roll-up of agencies, you know, the great boom of agencies in the 1970s. A lot of those owners were getting older and trying to figure out what to do. And I thought, well, we'll do a roll-up of agencies with interesting ink, royalty-producing mm -hmm. properties. Mm -hmm. And maybe if we could even do sort of imprint agencies under a larger imprint, if posterity is what they were after. And I started talking, I identified about 45 different agencies, mostly around New York, that were eh, defunct or moribund or just not really doing anything. And I started talking to the owners. And I discovered that every single agency was run differently mm -hmm. um, because of what I said earlier. You know, people get into this business because they love books, not because they know a thing about business administration. And you would come into these highly idiosyncratic situations where if you got to the point of trying to value the agency, it was near impossible because it was so tied up in their personal life. Now, you think about that situation and what happens if the owner of that agency dies. How's the author going to have access to their business information if it's held in an arcane system? How are they going to... Does it serve them for that to be the way it is and then I thought well this is the case it's it's it, this is a roll-up isn't going to happen maybe instead what we should look at or the why this is why this the problems that this situation creates and it's a data problem mm -hmm. you know authors should be able to log into someone who represents their work and download copies of their agreements and downloads royalty statements or do a tax interview for form tax forms and none of this stuff exists um, when i'm in front of a screen and recording a uh, deal i should have you know a social media button that will populate populate their social media feed and say happy to announce that so-and-so such-and-such will be published here in this language just as a way of amplifying the author's work mm -hmm. you know and you think of publishing if you think of so, such a thing as the theory of publishing a publisher takes content and creates frameworks for it and amplifies those works but the agent is in the business of amplifying the author's oeuvre as a whole across territories across languages and across formats so I'm very interested in considering how platforms the platform business model can advance those economic and moral interests of the author um, without um, creating yet another rentier situation where you're where you know because the agent uh, there's a possibility that the agent could just be another one of those social entities that inserts themselves into the situation and doesn't add any productivity whatsoever so i'm interested in looking at how platforms can allow agents to be better agents or allow authors to 
have the canonical control over their information. And It's really interesting talking about this uh, arcane, to keep using that word. Yeah. But it's a magic. It's a, it's a specialized body of knowledge that you're only going to learn if you're doing it with someone who's done it. Preferably someone who has a sense of business and how it's done properly. Um, it's a business that's never been professionalized. Mm. There's not the, the, you think of businesses that have software that organize like point of sale, plenty of software available for that. There may be three or four viable softwares available for literary agencies. Hmm. The, the one that is most popular is maybe used by 250 agencies and it's a Windows server based and it was designed in the 1980s and it, it, it is something that there are super users who use every aspect of it but really it's, uh, it's and all of this information is siloed. You know, right. no information about emerging markets can be derived. You know, it's siloed from agency to agency. So it's interesting to consider the potential of the platforms and the, the best practices that you can bake in and how would that change diversity in publishing? You know, most, just about every agent I know is white. Mm-hmm. There are some Asians, there are some Hispanic agents, very few African-American agents. Why, why shouldn't we give a login to a smart business person with a literary bent in Nigeria to start representing Nigerian authors? How do we, you know, the diversity is, the cost of entry to the business is high. Yeah. There are probably about a thousand literary agents in the world who sell more than two or three books a year. And that's it. Wow. And that information is derived from, you know, a database that where deals get reported. And yep. So when you go to Frankfurt to the Meze, who's in there? Who is there? We're all there. It's publishers and uh, yeah, every Frankfurt. Yeah, Frankfurt made me fall in love with publishing all over again. Oh yeah, I I hadn't gone. I'd always gone to the London Book Fair because Mm -hmm. I had a firm that represented my translation rights, and I had come up in the business knowing people like Owen and Ed Victor who went to Frankfurt and it cost them ten or fifteen thousand dollars for a single trip, and that just wasn't reasonable for uh, for someone starting out. But the first time I went to Frankfurt to be able to sit across from foreign publishers and talk about the ideas behind a book and not have to mention the author's platform, it was a joy. It was a joy to talk about the importance of this book and why people should read it versus nowadays how many Facebook, Facebook followers they have. You know, it's a world of ideas. And Frankfurt has a long history as being right up the river from... Uh, you know, Gutenberg on the mine, there's been a book fair in Frankfurt since the 1400s. Oh. Books have been traded there. Wow. And, uh, so you're, it's a, being a part of this wonderful uh, history, too, of, of the book, one of our symbols of civilization. Yeah, even with these very enticing, well-lit, backlit devices, the preferred mode to take in written word is still a well here's the thing going back to that Hmm. art and commerce thing there are platforms out there that are rights selling platforms where theoretically an author or agent would put their list their books on here and then publishers would theoretically go and shop for books there Mm -hmm. 
um, and they're ghost towns. Nobody uses them. They're largely populated by STEM books. Um, what you see at Frankfurt is that this is a living exchange between humans. There's human agency. We might introduce, get introduced to each other by email, get a sense of what each other does. But when we're sitting across the table talking about books, there's an animation and human connection that happens that is a kind of transmission, you know, and that's where you sell rights, you know. So no platform is going to change that essential exchange. What it is going to do is, is um, provide a level of security and confidence for the author that doesn't exist now and for other stakeholders. But it's a human, it's a human thing. You know, I remember in 1995, I was, I was probably the first literary agent on the internet. I was a young agent at William Morris. I was trying to make a name for myself. I put up a web page. I said, you know, I'm William Clark. I can introduce your work to agents at William Morris, knowing that a lot of academics and interesting people were using the net at that time. And the IT guy at William Morris heard about it and told the board of directors. And they came down pretty hard. And Owen called me in and he said, Owen was, of course, on the board of directors. And he said, what are you doing? And I, I told him what I was doing. And he said, well, I, I don't really see anything wrong with that. But, you know, this guy has his knickers in a twist because he's wanted to build a website and you've gone ahead and done it. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, but I stayed on the web, and you know, sure enough, I found a lot of interesting projects by being available in that, you know, on the net. That was early. It was. Wow. Yeah. But you know, I moved to New York, and there was Panics and Mindvox, and I had always been interested in tech, and built my first computer when I was twelve. Oh. And so I'd always had my finger and finger on keyboards, as it were. Radio Shack. Yes. Precisely. It was a Radio Shack kit. And, uh, Rudimentary computer, but a computer nonetheless. You know. Did you program it? I did. I put the wires in between the springs, and you put the programming strips in, and some would contact and some wouldn't. And you know, the essence of a computer are millions and millions of switches. Input-output. To shift a little bit, you know, a lot of creative people or some creative people like to identify as outsiders. Is that something that is a role that you see yourself as an outsider? Maybe. I have a vision, but I also like collegiality. I like sharing ideas. And when I left William Morris, I had Owen and I started working with an agent in London named Ed Victor. And I would could talk to them every day. And so I had a level of collegiality um, in that way with them that when they died I no longer had and I've recently started thinking about working with other people um, so I've been considering that but one thing that I've realized over time is there's not a lot of differentiation between agencies they might, some agencies might have better systems than other agencies, but mm, not a lot of differentiating um, activity mm -hmm. from agency to agency. And so when I think about what would inspire me to join a firm, it would be a, somewhere where there's a, a vision for raising the game.
in a way that I think the game need, needs to be raised. And it's been interesting going into the startup world and coming across of a lot of interesting uh, ways of thinking about content there. But in terms of the way that I think, um, maybe I am a loner. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the thing is, greater efficiency um, in this business means greater transparency and accountability. And I haven't uh, encountered a lot of agents who are eager to embrace that in the way that I am. I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in radical transparency. I don't think anything should be a mystery. We don't exist in a magical, mythical realm. We work for the author. And we, the author has to be completely confident that we are always putting their interest in front of our own. We derive our income and reputation from that. So how do you see your role in community? And whatever that community is, whether publishing world or your local neighborhood, or maybe there's different... Well, I think it's all together. If you're one way in one situation and another way in another situation, that's not a very productive way to be. It seems like a lot of work. So how do you bring it together? You know, and I've been a practicing Buddhist, and it's a big part of my life, and it's not something I go about preaching or proclaiming. But when you think about the spiritual life, a lot of people think, well, that's something I do on a Sunday, or that's something I do in a specific venue. I think... For me, bringing it all together is, uh, is really important. And ultimately, I want to help people. And I want to help authors realize their ideas in the best possible way. I want to help other agents be the best possible agents they can be. I want to hopefully point up the best part of the situation and encourage people to follow that and move it forward. When we mentioned the mess, a a gleam came came in your eye. The the marketplace, the souk, Mm -hmm. agora. What's inspiring now? Is it is it that marketplace? Is it uh, human connection? It's the exchange of ideas. It's hearing about what's working. It's about connecting with agents from around the world who are convinced that what they do is important and and is an important aspect of cultural production and benefit as a benefit mm-hmm. I meet very few agents who don't care about the work they represent almost every agent I know is invested and engaged by the work they represent so my inspiration is really coming from a lot of younger people especially after Parkland mm-hmm. and the way those students took hold of the conversation and did things that adults aren't able to make happen. They're our future. And I am inspired to support that in every possible way that I can. The future, the next step, will be gone. They'll be in charge. I think that I think we're that's a good place to stop. Okay, thank, thank you. Thank you. William, thank you so much for spending this uh, wonderful hour. My pleasure. And that's it for today's Harvey at Harvey, featuring a conversation with William Clark. I'd like to thank everyone at Williamsburg Hotel, and particularly the staff at Harvey Restaurant for hosting us. I've got great guests coming up to share their stories about inspiration, creativity, and community, so stay tuned for more Harvey at Harvey on Stitcher, iTunes, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, or Potomatic. <laughs>